Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. Well, good day to everybody. Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding and to another episode of one of our programs here, The Wesleyan Way, where we talk about all things Methodist. I am Alan Bevere, your host, and I am a pastor, retired. I am a professor, a Bible moth, a theologian in exile, and a peddler of hope. And I am also the self-appointed Anselm of Canterbury Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture here at Faith Seeking Understanding University, a completely made-up university, but where all seekers are welcome to ponder profound things free of charge. And I am very happy to have as my guest today, Donna Fowler-Marchant. Did I pronounce that correctly? Close enough. Okay. It's Fowler-Marchant. Fowler-Marchant, okay. Donna Fowler-Marchant, Reverend Doctor. She is a uh, United Methodist pastor, member of the North Carolina Conference, currently serving uh, four churches in the UK. Where are you in the UK? I am about 20 minutes by train from central London. Okay. So I'm just north of London. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be here today. And uh, we're talking today about your book. Here it is, folks, Mothers in Israel. Mother, and I love that name, by the way. And I'm going to ask you to explain that in a minute. Mothers in Israel, Methodist Beginnings Through the Eyes of Women. This is a really good book. And, you know, I, I thought it was rather knowledgeable about women in the Methodist movement, but boy, not, not really. I learned a lot and I appreciate, I appreciate (laughs) this book. Um, What gave rise to you writing this book? There's a long way back. You could go to trace it. I suppose. Um, I went undergraduate to Meredith college in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a women's college. And during my time there, I became very interested in women's voices and women's history and the things that you often didn't hear about. And then when I was at Duke, uh, I did my MDiv and my THM at Duke. Um, I was interested at that time. I was actually Baptist. I wasn't I wasn't Methodist. And so I was interested in kind of researching early Baptist women and what they had contributed to that particular movement. Um, But then eventually uh, I did become United Methodist and I did a D-Men through Wesley Seminary on spirituality and story. And the thing that I did my big project on for my D-Men had to do with clergy women and unique challenges that face them and some possible ways that that could be lessened, if you will. Um, And it was called Fire in Our Bones, United Methodist Clergy Women Faithful to the Divine Call. So it was rooted in the whole idea of um, being created in God's image, being called by Christ, and being gifted by the Spirit for ministry. And so naturally, there was also a historical component to it. And so I told just a little bit about early Methodism and the role that women played in that, um, and the ways that John Wesley was very uh, instrumental in encouraging that and really helping these women's voices to be heard. So the seeds have been sown along and along, I would say. Um, then in 2017, I came over here to the UK for a sabbatical. And I spent the first probably five or six weeks traveling around England. I was going to lots of the Wesley places. I went to the New Room in Bristol. I went to Wesley's Chapel, London. Um, I spent two weeks in Epworth, which they burst out laughing. They said, nobody spends two weeks in Epworth. And I said, well, I am. Um, And I spent um, a little over a week in Manchester at the John Rylands Library, which is where the largest group of Methodist archives in the world are located. And um, in order to be able to, to access those, those archives and those amazing artifacts, I had to be established as a researcher. 
So I contacted a bunch of different people to get them to vouch for me that I wasn't some random person, you know, wanting to go in there and wreak havoc. So I got approved um, as a genuine researcher at, at this amazing place and wound up having the opportunity to examine letters from John Wesley to family members, to ministers, to some of these women, um, letters uh, back to him and to Charles, uh, Charles's manuscripts of some of his hymns. I mean, just an amazing wealth of, of stuff there. I mean, you couldn't live long enough to, to go through it all. It's amazing. And um, so I already, I had the idea that I wanted to do something about Wesley and women and how that played out in early Methodism, but I didn't really have a strong focus for it at that point. So after my sabbatical was over and I was trying to sort of process everything that had gone on, I talked to various people and they said, oh, well, you know, I think you've got a book in that. You need to kind of see if you can narrow it down, blah, blah, blah. And like a lot of people, unless I have a deadline in front of me or somebody pushing me from behind, I don't necessarily you know, jump right on something. So it just sort of simmered for a while. Um, and then um, Kathy Armistead, who was at uh, GBHEM in the um, department that dealt with the two imprints, they have the Foundry Press and, um, oh, what is the other one? Anyway, there's there's two that they've got through GBHEM. She and I had become friends on Facebook and had chatted about various things having to do with this. And she said, I think you've got the germ of a book there, you know, get back with me. And I just kind of happened. And then she contacted me again and she said, let's get serious about this. And I went, oh, sign from God. Okay. So I really jumped back into it at that point. And, and I'd been researching it on and off. I mean, I can't tell you how many books I bought, how many articles online I printed out. I mean, I probably killed, you know, a million trees with all these, these, these things I printed out. Um, and it it just it sort of solidified into trying to look at these women not simply as in relation to Wesley, but in relationship to each other because that was a really important component of of who they were and of of their ministry. So that's kind of where all that went. And um, when when I got the um, instructions basically for how to structure the thing and and get it outlined and send all that stuff in that really kind of paired it to the bone and I really started working on it well then the pandemic hit and I wasn't able to go to Duke for example to um to the library and look up some more of the things that I was going to look at but when I looked around my house and saw all the stuff I had I thought you know what you can write the book without that I think it's I think you got enough here to do that so that's that's kind of the, the story of how it all evolved. Right. Wonderful. So um, I want to get into some of these Methodist women that you highlight in this book. Um, but first, I want to say, were there as you did your research, were there any surprises? Were, was there anything that, you know, you thought was something different than what it turned out to be? What 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 uh, what's what stuck out at you? I suppose there were some surprises. Um, I didn't realize until I really got into it how much of a network there was of these women and how how many of them lived in community and really truly became each other's family. And to the to the point at which um, there were people who had there were women who had very little to do with their family of origin, who had in many cases just cast them out because they become Methodist and really considered these other women to be their true you know, mother or sister or, or whatever. And I don't know that this was a surprise, but it was, it was kind of heartwarming, if you will, to see just how much Wesley supported them in spite of the fact that he was very much a man of his time. He, he was very patriarchal. You know, he did have those certain ideas, but he gave space for these women's voices to be heard. And I think it just, it just reaffirmed to me how happy I am to be United Methodist and stand in that tradition because uh, as a Baptist woman, you didn't necessarily get that same sort of sense of support and whatever, even though there were women who were very instrumental in, in Baptist history early on. But the way that women were in this just literally from the beginning and the huge impact that Susanna Wesley had on her sons in ways that um, other people maybe have unpacked, but I just didn't fully appreciate until I looked at it. So it just, it, it was really just amazing to me to see that the story of Methodism truly can't be told without telling the stories of these women. Yeah. 
Um, and yet that is how it's been told. Because when, when I was at Duke, uh, which was, by the way, fantastic education, um, we didn't talk a lot about these women. I mean, you got a little mention of Susanna. You got a little mention maybe of Sarah Crosby and Mary Bozenkett, but um, that was kind of it. And to really dig in and read their stories, and most importantly, to read their own words was really powerful to me because it was very obvious that these were women who did these unconventional things because they felt the spirit was leading them. They didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to turn society on its head. I'm going to freak out people in the church. I'm going to be you know, perceived as unfeminine. They literally just felt that it was it was God at work within them. And that gave them a sense of, of boldness to 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 do these things for which they were criticized and you know ostracized um, and yet to do it with great joy. So, um, yeah, that 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 but it was perhaps a surprise to me to see just how deeply they felt led by the spirit. You know, and that's one of the things, because one of the things I thought about as I read your book uh, on several at several points was really that kind of movement. Uh, from, you know, the, the, the motivation they had because they felt like they were being led by the spirit. I mean, I mean, in spite of the, even though they had certain challenges in that time, it really worked well for them to be Methodist because, you know, Wesley sort of, Wesley's in that vein. In fact, this is why Wesley's allowing these women to have a voice, even though, as you say, he's in the midst of a patriarchal culture. He embraces a lot of that in his, in his uh, time. And yet, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I sort of chuckled a little bit on a couple of occasions as I was reading because, you know, 21st century, but just how Wesley's trying so hard to give these let these women have their ministries and let them have their voices because he sees what's happening, but he just needs to make sure it doesn't fall under preaching. So, so <laughs> you know, so there so he's sort of trying to split hairs as to, you know, you know, as long as you don't do this, this and this and that or the other. But yet but yet he really is. He really is because of his sensitivity to the spirit. I mean, I, maybe that's just one thing that he and these women had in common. They they had this sense of the spirit leading them. And Wesley didn't want to uh, didn't want to shut that down. Absolutely not. And and I think it's it's quite funny as you say he, he was splitting hairs about you're exhorting if you do this do this because he didn't want it to be seen as women preaching because he didn't want it to be seen as some kind of separation from the church of england and that was typical of wesley all along you know he would do things all the time and it would be like oh you're leaving the anglican church and he'd be like no i'm really not so it definitely fell into that vein um it, it, it's quite interesting to me that because he would say for example, he was so reluctant himself to start field preaching and, you know, talked about submitting to be more vile. And then later on, Mary Bozenkett said, I'd just as soon not be doing this because I don't necessarily want to be seen as an impudent woman. And then she says, but if my Lord requires me to be still more vile, I will be. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's it's very much that same that same sense of I really don't want to be doing this weird thing, but I think God's calling me to do it. So I'm going to do it. And so, you know, they went off from there um, without knowing what what a, what a massive impact it was going to have, I think. But because they trusted that God was guiding it, I think they didn't worry too much about that. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought at times that maybe we United Methodists should change our models from a model from open hearts, open minds, open doors, which is good to uh, we 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 desire to be more vile. That actually yeah, there you go. <laughs> That might get some attention, you know, if we post it on our on our church church buildings. Um, so let's what uh, the title "Mothers in Israel." Explain that, would you? Yeah, that was you know, it's always the thing. What are you going to title the sermon? What are you going to entitle anything that you write? And as I was as I was doing the research, I discovered that it was very uh, common for Wesley and some of these early Methodists to refer to some of these women as mothers in Israel, which was taken from the book of Judges in a way that the judge Deborah was, was described. And um, Methodism saw itself as a family and John very much was kind of the father of the family and it was sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so. But these particular women were called mothers in Israel because they like Deborah were very bold. They listened for what God was saying and they did it and they were they were pious they 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 were kind of the real deal they just had it all sort of together 
Um, so it was a very special thing for a woman to be called a mother in Israel. It wasn't just something that was said of every woman. And since um, those tended to be the women in these leadership and preaching kind of uh, roles, it just seemed like the perfect title for it. And it was quite funny because, of course, it's a quote, Mothers in Israel. So I originally had it in quotes, but it was going to be weird having it in quotes and having it as the title of the book. So we had to just sort of leave it, you know, as it is. But it's certainly not original with me. And it was something that even in early Methodism in, in America, there were women who were called Mothers in Israel for the same reason. So it's got a long history within our history, but most of us don't know that. Yeah. Um, it just it just hasn't been something that's been told. So, yeah, I, I did want very much. I wanted the um, the subtitle to be something like Impudent Methodist Women. But I think there was another book that already had impudent in it. And so they decided Methodist beginnings through the eyes of women might be better. So I was disappointed, but OK. <laughs> yeah. Um, publishers and editors sometimes, you know, they. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always said I want to write a book. I want to write a book and and. Uh, you know, put some interesting uh, words in the in the in the uh, index, the, sub, the, the subject index. But I never get I never get what I want. Anyway, so so let's talk about the first the first mother in Israel and Methodism, Susanna Wesley. I mean, I think if there's anything people know about women in Methodism, it's about Susanna. She yeah. really uh, she she had uh, talk a little bit about the incredible impact she had on her sons, uh, you know, and particularly in this instance, we're talking about John, that really helped provide for them the attitude that allowed women to have, a, you know, for the day, a significant place yeah. in, in the ministries yeah. of, of the church or the movement. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, Suzanne, Anna was, she would have been a remarkable woman in any age. I mean, if, if things had been different, she would have probably been the one who, who started the Methodist movement or moved it along um, because she was, she was incredibly intelligent. She was intellectual. She had this immense freedom of conscience that led her to stand up for what she believed against her husband, which led to all sorts of interesting situations. Um, against well pretty much anybody and, and it was funny too to me that she would argue theology with her sons who were at Oxford and she would be like no I think you've fallen into a strange way of thinking and she would tell them this is what she thought and the fact that they listened to her and paid attention to what she said speaks volumes about the regard they held her in because they knew that she was you know deeply immersed in reading theology um, and at the same time, deeply immersed in a spiritual life that included included um, you know journal keeping and constant set aside times for prayer. So in some ways, they couldn't have escaped. So what somebody said, no son of Susanna could have ever thought that women um, could not have their own freedom of conscience. Yeah. No, no son of Susanna would have ever thought, oh, a woman can't be in leadership somehow in in a spiritual way. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, because, you know, most people know the story about um, her and, and uh, the argument that she and Samuel had over who the rightful king was. And she supported one and he supported the other. And Samuel, you know, I tried really hard to be objective in writing about Samuel, but I'm afraid that my feelings towards him really kind of crept out. Um, he was he would fly off the handle and just get really angry and then just impulsively you know, do something. So in this particular case, he said very dramatically to her, well, you know, if we don't have one king, we cannot have one bed. I'm separating myself from you. And he left her with, you know, six small children at home. I mean, who does that, especially in a time when how was she supposed to support herself and the children? I mean, it's just appalling to imagine what that was like. Um, and so he kept sort of demanding that, that she apologize for having this difference of opinion. And she wrote letters to um, to the bishop and to, uh, you know, some other significant people trying to get them to intervene with Samuel. And she said, I cannot confess a sin, something I don't feel to be a sin. If he's allowed to have, have his liberty of conscience, why can't he allow my little liberty of conscience? So they grew up with with a mother who who was 
practically destitute because of this thing her husband did, and yet she didn't back down because she said in that same letter, you know, God's going to somehow provide for us. I do believe that. And I'm thinking, wow. I, I mean, it's just mind boggling. So that there's there's that aspect, I think, of of um, of of it. And then them seeing also that she had this ability to lead the prayer meetings in, in the rectory when Samuel was away. Um, despite the fact that there was a lot of mumbling from Mr. Inman, the curate, about that. And he wrote to Samuel and said, oh, you need to tell her to stop this. And Samuel was like, oh, you need to stop. And then she said, but this is what I'm doing. And he was like, oh, okay. And then Inman wrote him again, and he got riled up again and said, no, you really do need to stop. And she just kind of put the brakes on it. And she said, if you command me to stop, then I will. But I've told you all the good that this is doing and I'm not going to stop having these meetings. I'm not going to stop sharing the word of God with the community unless you command it. And you just need to know that you're going to be responsible at the judgment seat for making me lose this opportunity to do good to people's souls. And so he backed down. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable that they grew up with, you know, with with all that, um, with the fact that she she would write them all of her children. She would write them letters in which she told them the most important thing that she had to do on earth was the care of their souls. Mm -hmm. And so she was encouraging them to, you know, to study the creed, for example. So she wrote kind of a lesson plan out of the apostles creed for her kids. And, um, you know, she wrote, she wrote a, a lesson plan on the 10 commandments for her kids. She was just so absolutely dedicated to educating them in the things of God that um, even if it looked in, in the way they would have said particular, we'd say peculiar, even if it looked particular, she was going to do these things. Yeah. And I love about her that she was so supportive of her sons, because of course people were looking at them and going, what is with these Wesley boys? You know, they're, they're doing these very strange things. And she, she said, you know, I do indeed rejoice in my sons and I couldn't be happier if one were the Archbishop of Canterbury and one the Archbishop of York, which is, you know, pretty high praise um and and she also wrote an anonymous defense of their theology just a few months before her death um when they were kind of in a in a calvinist arminian argument with with george whitfield and it was suspected that she was the person who had written this but it wasn't until the 1960s that frank baker kind of beyond a shadow of a doubt proved that it was her because of a notation of um that he found in a in a ledger somewhere and I just think that's incredible that, you know, she picked up a pen and just did that. Uh, she didn't think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a woman and, oh, I need to let people who actually know, I need to let the men who actually know this stuff say stuff about it. No, she took pen in hand and she, and she wrote this, um, this kind of astute defense of, of their theology. And so it, it, she just sort of encapsulated the way that a woman could live within the conventions of her time because she she was bound to. There were things that she couldn't do because she wasn't allowed to. And yet she was able to step beyond that again because she felt that it was the spirit pushing her to do it, that it was God calling her to do certain things. And that is is um, one of the things I tried to, to bring out in the book is that was a thing that you found in all these women's stories that none of them were particularly, nobody would have looked at them and said they were firebrands. I mean, they weren't, they weren't, stirring things up just just for the heck of it um but that they all indeed found that even within that sphere that was supposed to be the woman's sphere that um the spirit was giving them the tools and the energy and the the fire within to to do these other things and so yeah that the, the the boys saw this in their mother and i mean they 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 would have known from the beginning that um you know, women, women can do things that don't necessarily fall within the, the categories that we've, we've placed in, placed them in. And their sisters, it's, it's really sad to read about their sisters. They all had such really miserable lives um, in some ways, because Susanna had educated them at home, just as she had the boys before the boys went off to school, but there really weren't men around who were kind of on their same level to marry. And so it led to all sorts of very unhappy marriages. Um, you know, several of Susanna's children died young. I mean, I can't imagine she, she, she had 19 children in all, 
and you know several of them died some of them as infants and some of them as, as adults so she had a lot of sorrow in her life and yet she just had this deep faith that kept her going and you know her her sons were going to have a lot of adversity in their lives and that kept them going that that sense of, of faith and that bedrock sense of being able to trust God um so yeah I don't think you, I don't think you can overestimate the the influence that she had on him on on John and Charles yeah yeah you mentioned about the the the, the daughter her daughter Susanna's daughters John and Charles sisters who it, it almost it, it feels it feels to me that she raised them raised the daughters and educated the daughters for a time that uh, not yet existed in some sense, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and so that that's unfortunate. Uh, speaking of speaking of women fitting in with the conventions, but still being able to to be in ministry and do their works. One of the things that did strike me was the issue of celibacy. That there were a couple of the women you talked about who uh, were celibate, which probably in a in a time is not was not the preferred status for women, right? And, I mean, I mean, you you get women, you get married and you fulfill, you know, all of the roles uh, as a wife and mother in that day. And yet here you have uh, some of these mothers in Israel who are in these communities, taking care of these communities and really thinking about something I think we've lost that I wish we would recover. And that is the whole notion of celibacy being a calling or marriage being a calling. That's not something yeah. you automatically do one way or another. I mean, this was a real issue to them. And they were, you know, they're saying, you know, I, I, I don't think marriage works because that's, I can't fulfill my call. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about that. That, that is a really, really interesting aspect of all this because many of the women were widowed and had no plans on being married again, or in the case of Mary Bozenkate, she was, she was single and was exercising her ministry for a long time. She wrote a, a tract about singleness for women, um, which is is quite interesting because she's arguing that this is a calling for women to 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 be single and to pursue their ministry. And she only married John Fletcher after many years of they they knew each other and weren't in contact. And then he contacted her, thinking that he was probably going to die soon. And they did marry, but unfortunately he died four years later. And then she spent numerous years, you know, as a widow. So the bulk of her time in ministry was indeed as a, as a single woman. And she had other single women, some of them around her own age that were living with her in community, but also younger women that she was mentoring and that she was a mother to. So it, it's 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 interesting that it does go against that whole idea of that women were supposed to be married, they were supposed to have children. Um, it goes against that whole idea that the biological family is the thing, because these were families of affinity and of um, of shared ministry and um, you know, shared pa passion and devotion for God, rather than families of you know blood or any kind of legal legal ties even. Um, and, and, and that just, that really strikes me as part of that whole boldness that these, that these women had in saying, well, this is, this is the way that, that we feel it's best for us to live because this is what we can do together. And so they encouraged each other in their preaching ministries. They encouraged each other in educating, um, you know, the, the, the orphans that they took in and trained. Um, it, it, they just had a very tight network. And in a way, it's not that they had the same kind of rule of life that nuns would, but in a way, it's sort of that sort of, um, you know, female community that um, that over overrode the, the ties of family. So, yeah, I think I think we've lost a sense in in Protestantism as, as a whole um, for this sense that that being single is a calling for some people and that that's not a defect. And I know I hear a lot of my colleagues um, who, who are pastors who, if they're single, they're constantly bombarded with, oh, let me introduce you to my grandson or whatever. You know, like you, you have to be married in order to, you know, to be complete or whatever. Um, and these women didn't feel that. They, they didn't feel that at all. And they had such a sense of God's love kind of directly, but also as mediated through each other and the larger Methodist movement, um, that I don't think they felt any lack of, of love in that, in that sense. 
So yeah, it's 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 quite fascinating. Somebody somebody really ought to kind of delve into that part a bit more. Yeah, one of the things you also said when, when you went when you talked about at your education at uh, Duke, which is something we have in common, uh, um, and that is uh, that you didn't hear a lot about the women. You heard some. But you even talk about how some uh, Methodist men, leaders, uh, in the publication of these women's works, uh, edited them and um, uh, essentially cut their voices out on for certain reasons, uh, on certain things that they wrote. So what is going on there? Yeah, yeah, that that's the thing that there were various things along and along as I did research that made me angry. And that I think is the thing that made me the angriest it, because it wasn't that things accidentally happened for these stories to be lost. It was that very deliberate steps were taken to cut out these women's legacy, to kind of paper over what they had done and to pretend that, you know, that they hadn't done it. And so as long as Wesley was alive, they had a real advocate because Wesley, I mean, bless him, he was bossy. I mean, he was large and in charge and that was the way things were going to be. And if he was in, in, in support of these women, then as long as he was alive, they knew that they had his backing and there really wasn't anything that people who might be mumbling on the edges were going to be able to do. After his death, and especially as Methodism broke away from the Church of England and started becoming its own institution, it started losing a lot of those sort of unconventional things like having the women preaching. And so it, it became, you know, it became official basically at, um, I think in 1805, that if there weren't men available for preaching, well, then the women could, but really they, they probably shouldn't do it. Although the record clearly shows there were women who were continuing to do it, some of them with, with some pretty strong support, Mary Bowes and Kate Fletcher being one of those. Um, but it, it was really distressing to me and, and, and did make me really angry to read that, for example, in, in her writings, um, she I would say that she would qualify as a mystic. She had dreams and she had very kind of direct experiences of God that um, that perhaps sound very strange to us. Who, who you know live in the 21st century and we think everything's got to be very rational and she she had written about a dream or a vision that she had had in which um God was telling her or Jesus was telling her you know to feed feed the children and in this dream she was breastfeeding and I mean that's an intensely feminine image and this just got completely cut out when her journal was published and I'm thinking really I mean it, it, that that sort of thing was just unbelievable to me and when the Armenian magazine would come out and it would have obituaries of some of these mothers in Israel it might mention their work with the poor and their educating people and whatever these sorts of things the way they assisted the itinerant uh, um, male preachers but it would it would totally leave out the fact that they were preachers mm. even when that had been the, the bulk of what their ministry had been was preaching very deliberate attempt to make Methodism look more respectable because, of course, it was, you know, it was weird. Quakers and Baptists might have women preachers, but, you know, the Church of England didn't do that. And so as, as Methodists became more of, of a, a sort of solidified as, a, as an institution, you start getting that sort of that sort of pushback. And I don't know exactly what happened on this side of the Atlantic, because that's not what I did my research on. But it would be interesting to see at what point that sort of kicked in over here as well. Because the writings of people like Hester Ann Rogers and, and Mary Bowes and Kit Fletcher were, I mean, men and women were reading their journals well into the next century. Um, but then you don't hear about it after that. So it, it's 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 really interesting that that, that influence was really kind of curtailed at some point. Um, so yeah, that was that was infuriating to me to see that it wasn't just that oh things happened; it was things deliberately happened to make their voices less less heard. Well, thank God we've got you and others who are telling the stories <laughs> where they are intended to be told. So that's good news. That's good news for us. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of these other women you highlight because I don't want to uh, end without doing a little bit of that. Uh, and I'm just going to mention the names and you can just tell me whatever you think about them that's significant. So let's talk about Mary Bo Bozenken Fletcher. Did I get that right? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So tell me, tell me. She, what she was, she was amazing. She, she was, um, wow. There's so much that could be said about her. She was raised in, in a fairly well-to-do kind of merchants family. So she wasn't aristocracy, but she was, you know, very solidly, um, comfortable, if not luxurious. And she, um, from the time that she was a, a young child, had this very sort of mystical experience of God. And she she talks very movingly about receiving communion and what that meant to her when she was, I think, 16. And she began to, to know some of these Methodists and to be influenced by them. And her family was very distressed by this because they saw them as enthusiasts they they were they were wild kind of fanatical people and what were they doing to 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 influence their daughter and so um they tried to make her promise to to stay away from them and she tried to and then she finally said to them you know i i, I can't these these are these are the people of god i need to be part of them and so her father said well you're going to have to leave the house because you you haven't promised that you will stop speaking about them to your brothers because her brothers were younger and she said, no, I won't promise to stop speaking about them. So I will leave. So they said that. And then a couple of weeks went by and nothing happened and nothing happened. And she thought, well, is it going to happen or not? And finally, they did say, you know, yeah, you need to leave. So she moved out with her maid into, uh, you know, circumstances that would not be comfortable to her. She was cold. She was having to worry about how she was going to be fed. I mean, all this sort of thing. Um, and then her family would send her things it was weird. They didn't cut her off altogether, but they didn't want to hear about this Methodist stuff, but they would send her food or they'd send her some wine or whatever. And she did have money and some things that she had inherited from a godmother. So she had eventually a place to live that she turned into a school and an orphanage. Um, but she, she just, she didn't, she didn't take that as, oh golly, which I mean, she worried about the fact that she thought she was dishonoring her parents because she took that commandment very seriously, but she tried to balance that out with, well, but God is calling me in this direction. And so again, it was that freedom of conscience, that, that overriding sense of the spirit leading her to do something else. And so she and um, Sarah Crosby and Sarah Ryan in particular, you know, set up a place together where they lived and took care of each other. And Sarah Ryan was from a completely different social class. She was not wealthy. She was not well-educated. She had a bit of a reputation because she had been married to three different men and they had abandoned her at various stages and perhaps without legally divorcing her. That wasn't clear. And of course, this was hugely scandalous in the 18th century. Um, and yet Mary saw her as her mother. She, she regarded Sarah Ryan as her mother. And so she was perfectly content for them to live together and her to take care of providing the money and, and that kind of financial support, because Sarah, being a woman of the world who knew what was up, was very good at learning how to budget and, you know, kind of make things run on a practical level. So it, it's funny how they, they found these women found each other and their gifts sort of complemented each other. And um Mary was was she was she was so close to Sarah that she you know she called her the friend of my soul and that was a big thing in early Methodism was having friends spiritual friends with whom you could be accountable for for spiritual things and uh, she said she never found anyone else until she married John Fletcher who um, filled that same kind of position in her life you know there were other women that she deeply cared for and that they shared the ministry and and sense of you know confessing to each other and so forth but um, nobody was ever quite that that close to her as Sarah Ryan and um, Mary I think was was really brilliant at thinking things very logically through kind of the way Wesley was, you know, I mean, Wesley, Wesley was not going to get into an argument with somebody without being able to very calmly say this leads to this leads to this, because he just had that kind of mind and he was trained in debate. And she was in, in her own way, she was the same way because um, as she and these other women were exhorting and in fact had become preachers, but that word wasn't really, really being spoken. She wrote this long letter to Wesley in which she said, I'm going to set down some of the objections that are being raised about us doing this. And I'm going to show you my responses and please show me if I've gone wrong in any way. But she worded it in such a way that it was going to be, Mr. Wesley, this falls in line with what you said about other things. So I know you're going to have my back. I mean, it's really quite funny. And so she 
could, she would raise these objections and then she would answer them using scripture, appealing to Wesley's um, own actions and words and so forth. And it was really, it was really very convincing. And so Wesley said, you know, I think you've not gone too far. I think you're absolutely right that there is such a thing as an extraordinary call because that was her big thing. She said, every man is not called to preach, neither is every woman. And yet sometimes there is this extraordinary call. And so Wesley, of course, found that hugely persuasive. In his response to her, he said, I'm convinced that Methodism itself is an extraordinary dispensation of God's grace. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be willing to step over the lines of what's been acceptable for so long. Um, and he talks about the men lay preachers as being a, a prime example of that, which, by the way, Susanna had been instrumental in you know, getting him to see that that men could be lay people and yet be called to preach. So there again, you're seeing that influence of Susanna kind of coming through with John's response to Mary, because he said, you know, I think you're absolutely right. No, not every woman is going to be called to, to preach, but some are going to have that extraordinary call. And Mary, what she had said, this I, I have to think she said this with a hint of humor because I found it quite funny. She said, you will say, speaking to people objecting, you will say that perhaps the spirit will only move a woman once or twice in her lifetime to preach. Whereas we say it might be once or twice a day. You know, so I just found that really interesting that she was kind of saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but this is what we're, this is what we're saying. And this is our experience of this. And um, yeah, and Wesley found that he found that compelling because it fell in completely in line with what he was doing with, with Methodism as a whole. So um, there's that whole thing about Mary. Then there's the extraordinary relationship that she had, not just with, the, with these other women, but with John Fletcher. The four short years they were married, they were a clergy couple in all but name because they, they exercised a joint ministry of, of preaching and of educating children and of uh, spiritual direction. And then after his death, she was allowed to stay in the house that, that had been his only because he was the vicar there. Um, with with the extraordinary power of whoever got called to be the local priest, she would have basically veto power over that. That is unheard of. I mean, that's absolutely unheard of. Not to mention the fact that she actually preached in the church at Maidley. She preached in the parish church. She wouldn't get in the pulpit. She'd do it from the steps, but she preached and, um, you know, actually led morning or evening prayer not to mention the fact that she had her own kind of place of worship where she would preach and, and, and teach. And I think it's remarkable that in those archives they have in Manchester, that they have um, her, what she called her watchwords. And these were basically sermon notes that she had. And she had these, these beautiful thoughts and meditations on different titles for Jesus that she, she talked about at great length. And also she had watch notes on different, um, titles for the church and those I haven't been able to get a hold of and read I would love to see more about that yeah. but uh, her watchwords for for different words for Jesus were just beautiful and and deeply rooted in scripture um, and in some cases very deeply feminine which again you you do find in scripture so she was she was amazing she lived until 1815 so she got she lived through um a lot of that early Methodist stuff, including the the kind of official pushing down of women's roles, and yet nobody tried to do that to her because she was such a, a mother in Israel, if you if you will, and um, her influence upon other women and on men because there there were numerous Methodist men who became preachers who said it was through her influence, it was through her um, spiritual advising of them and um, of her example, so. I think I think she needs to be much better known and these things that she said and did need to be much better known because the, the impact was clearly there and people were very um, cognizant of that. Whereas today we maybe know her name or not. And that's about it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she yeah. was quite. Yeah. And I, I took note in your book when we got to the watchwords, because I, I thought that was. I mean, I thought that was it was well done what she did. But it, but, you know, and even though it's not technically preaching as they were concerned about it, it's what preachers do. It's the yeah. kind of stuff they do. Right. Yeah. So um, let's talk about I think we've got time for one more. Let's talk about Sarah Crosby a little bit. 
Yeah, Sarah Crosby was um, was was part of this this early um, early movement of women leaders, and she's considered by some people to be the first woman preacher of Methodism. That may or may not be true, but the reason that that she's often called that is because she sort of fell into it by accident, sort of the way Susanna fell into leading those prayer meetings at the rectory. It was kind of like, okay, the people are here. They need to hear the word of God. There's no one else to do it. I'll do it. So Sarah was supposed to be meeting with a class. She thought of maybe 20, 25 people. Some 200 people showed up. And she knew full well she couldn't speak one-on-one -on -one to each of them. Yeah. So what to do? And Methodists have been, if nothing else, practical. You know, Mr. Wesley was always very practical. If there was a problem, he'd figure out a way to, to deal with it. Well, Sarah was practical too. She thought, I will just tell them a little bit of what God has done for me. We'll sing a hymn. We'll pray. And then I'll find out if Mr. Wesley's okay with that. So that's what she did. Immediately wrote him a letter. And she said, this is what I did. I couldn't think of any anything better to do because I knew I couldn't meet with them individually and he wrote back to her to affirm what she had done but the funny thing to me and all of that before she got his response she did it again I mean that that when I looked at the dates of that and I checked it very carefully to see she did this again before she got his response affirming what she had done which said to me and she said in her journal but she knew that it was of the spirit that it, that it was of God and that God owned that ministry and I thought that was absolutely breathtaking that, you know, when she, when she did it the first time, she thought, well, I, I better I better get permission or at least forgiveness from Mr. Wesley for this. But the opportunity came up a couple of days later and she went ahead and did it because she felt so moved by the spirit. And that was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, and he did, of course, say. Well, yeah, I think I, I don't I don't think of anything else you could have done. You did the right thing. Still wasn't calling it preaching, but that was kind of that that watershed moment, um, at least as far as we know, of, of that happening. And she continued her preaching. Um, she was very itinerant. She lived part of the time with Mary. She lived part of the time with, with some other women um, up in Yorkshire. And she continued preaching almost up until the, you know, the moment of her death. And um, interestingly, several of these women are buried together. Sarah Ryan and Sarah Crosby and at least one other woman are, are buried in the same grave um, and trip, which I think is absolutely amazing. They were together in life and they're together in, in death. And um, they were, uh, you know, on their on their gravestone, which I haven't seen yet, but I hope to while I'm here. It talks about them being mothers in Israel. So, um, yeah, these really were very remarkable women who 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 did what they could because God gave them the grace to do it. And they would sometimes feel very unworthy and yet they did it anyway. And I think any of us who are ministers feel that because there are times when, when we feel like, well, why in the world would God take anything that I could possibly do and do anything with it? Um, and I think they offer a word of encouragement to us to say, you know, it doesn't matter what the constraints are around you. You can still say something for God. And um, that that's I think that's a powerful word for 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 anyone who's in ministry, no matter male, female, whatever. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the call of God. <laughs> you know, it's, There are there are moments where it's like, I, why? You know, what, God, what were you thinking? But, but, uh, <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Well, I, uh, I wanted to read just a couple of sentences of your conclusion. I really appreciate it. Um, you're summing everything up here. And you talk about these mothers in Israel, the women, you say their obedience to God pushed the boundaries of accepted behavior for women, challenged the expectations of a woman's place in public life, brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to rowdy people in unconventional places and paved the way for the eventual ordination of their spiritual daughters. To them, we owe a debt of gratitude. We cannot pay for their holy boldness, their stubborn obedience their honest self-appraisal and their wise spiritual counsel to the people called Methodists. They really, they really have left us a wonderful legacy, haven't they? They really have. They really, yeah. really have. Yeah, and and I think that sentence sums up uh, what you said. There sums up. They, they, they. Uh, just like John Wesley submitted to become more vile. Vile. Thank God. <laughs> for yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Donna, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time. Um, anything, you, any last minute thing you want to sum up before before we close this out? I, I just I just want to say how happy I am to have an opportunity to to talk about this. And, you know, I'll be happy to speak with people on Zoom if it happens to be in a situation where I could do it in person, whatever. I'll be more than happy to talk about this because I really do think these women's names ought to be as familiar to us as, you know, any 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 of those early people. I think a lot of times we don't know our history anyway. So it's not just the women who've been forgotten, but particularly because they were so deliberately forgotten by, by some people. I, I really would like for their voices to be heard and their, um, you know, their, their, their spiritual thoughts and their spiritual counsel, because a lot of what they said was very practical as well as being very spiritual. And um, we need that to have a more complete picture of of what Methodism and, and particularly Wesley, Wesleyan Methodism um, ought to look like and be like. And yeah. in a time of so much fragmentation in the denomination, um, I, th I think it's great to have voices that were united and that were uh, very communal and very much connected because that whole idea of connection is, is so deeply Methodist. They really, is, really, is they really found ways so, through all the tensions, didn't they? Um, it, yeah. I mean, it wasn't easy, yeah. but they but they managed to find a way. And um, yeah, some some lessons for us. Well, anyway, thank you very much, uh, friends. This is the book. I urge you to get it and read it. Mothers in <laughs> Israel. The subtitle is what the author didn't prefer. <laughs> Methodist Beginnings <laughs> Through the Eyes of Women. This is a wonderful book and we hardly scratched the surface of all that's in here. So, uh, Reverend Dr. Donna Fowler-Marchant, I got that right, I think. There you and, uh, go. And we thank you. And uh, uh, friends, this is Alan Bevere at Faith Seeking Understanding and the patron saint of uh, Faith Seeking Understanding University is Anselm of Canterbury, who said, I do not understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. So friends, keep seeking. Mm -hmm.